Paragliding has changed me in, in the way that it has given me a wonderful perspective, both figuratively and literally, on life. Um, in that sometimes yeah, there's a lot going on, but you have to like keep calm, keep your breathing together, and, and move forward with confidence. And that's something that I, I bring with me to every aspect of my life. Adventure Sports Podcast, episode 359. We talk paragliding with Sarah Lockwood. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Today I have Sarah Lockwood with us. Sarah Lockwood is with College Outside, and it's an amazing organization that helps to provide adventure sports outdoors gear to college outdoor programs. But Sarah is here today not necessarily just to talk about college and, and outdoor gear. She's here today to talk about paragliding. And we were just visiting. It has been a long time since the Adventure Sports Podcast has done a show on paragliding. We are overdue, and so I am super excited that Sarah is here to share with us today. Sarah, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Oh, you bet. It's our pleasure. It's uh, it's fun to talk about paragliding, but we have not talked about it in a long, long time. And uh, Sarah, for those people who maybe have never seen it, just give us a rough sketch. What is paragliding? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, people often confuse paragliding, hang gliding, kiteboarding, you know, uh, base jumping, they kind of are all into this like sport that happens in the air. But paragliding is actually a fairly mellow sport. It can be done in a very mellow way. But it is um, when you are flying in a seated harness and you've got an arch-shaped wing above your head connected by a bunch of lines. Um, and so that is paragliding. Um, it typically involves launching off of a hill and the goal of paragliding is to stay in the air as long as possible using, you know, the invisible forces of air and wind and, and thermals that birds use to fly. And, and that's kind of the general overview. That's fun. You know, of everything that you just mentioned there, paragliding is the one that's the most appealing to me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've actually never done any sort of base jumping or skydiving or really any other sort of like kite based sport. I'm not really an adrenaline junkie. I don't like I'm more of an uphill athlete than a downhill one. And um, and so paragliding has been really cool and new to try. And, um, and I've really been loving it. Well, just for clarification, you said you launch off a hill. That's not like a base jumper launches off a hill. Describe <laughs> no. how you take off. No, it can be really slow. So essentially, you are kind of on a sloped hill and you wait for a good, you know, wind cycle or thermal cycle that lifts your kite up and you turn around. And sometimes you can kind of just walk right off until your wing picks you right up and lifts you right off the ground. So in many cases, if it's done correctly, most times it's actually a fairly slow process. It's not like you're just like one, two, three, jump and launch off, you know? Right. A lot of people think that skydiving is really, really dangerous. The, the actual numbers don't support that. It's actually a very mm. safe sport. How mm -hmm. would you rank paragliding on that danger skill? Yeah, I mean, I think like all things, it can be dangerous. It just kind of depends on how you do it and, and how you're able to manage your risk. So I, my background is actually, I was mainly primarily a rock climber before I got into paragliding. And, you know, for folks who don't rock climb, they think that rock climbing is very dangerous and there are definitely really dangerous forms of rock climbing right if you're free soloing or or doing kind of really high alpine stuff with with really intense weather patterns but generally day to day it can be relatively safe um, if you have your systems correct and you, you know you're making good decisions and you are doing your research and so I mean, paragliding can definitely be dangerous, um, but it, that usually comes when somebody is kind of pushing the envelope or, you know, has made a decision on a bad weather day or, or in some cases, as most things, they just got unlucky. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I wanted to make that distinction. When we study the dangerous aspects of adventure sports, we find out that almost universally, they're safer than driving the car to go do the sport. Right. And it's surprising because... These sports often are kind of exciting, a little bit of an adrenaline or a challenge, and sometimes you're dealing with heights or speed or you name it, right? 
But the reality is these sports, if a person is properly trained, using proper equipment and making wise decisions, they're safer than driving the car to go to do the sport. But I wanted to make that distinction primarily because people think about base jumping as very dangerous, and that is the one adventure sport that truly is very dangerous. But this is not that. This is not that, right? It's not. And that being said, though, I am nowhere near um, an expert in the paragliding space. I am a very super novice. I only learned last summer. And um, so I I can't really give you any statistics on it or anything like that. But um, for my experience, it definitely can be as long as you're willing to be patient and put the time into it and, and, you know, really listen and learn. um, It doesn't necessarily have to be an extreme sport. Yeah, I agree. And I love the idea of soaring. Just it, And it's not like the little bird that's flapping its wings at 100 miles per hour. This is soaring like an eagle, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the coolest thing. My first mountain flight I ever took, um, it, I, I learned here in Santa Barbara. And Santa Barbara is actually an amazing place to learn. That's one of the reasons I learned in the first place is it turns out that there's one of the best paragliding schools, Eagle Paragliding, in the country is located here in Santa Barbara. And the condition, conditions are really consistent. And so you can get a lot of flights and it's a great place to learn. And I remember uh, my first launch and somebody had taken a video of it and a couple of photos. And right there, right off the launch, it was my first time kind of flying really off of a mountain. And I was there with an eagle right in the frame with me of that photo. And <laughs> That's great. It was this moment where, like, I don't actually think at the time I remember that because um, my brain was on fire, you know, because I was flying, right? right? And off of this mountain and I was a couple of thousand feet above the ground and and just trying to, like, keep my together and but looking back and seeing that photo it was like whoa like that's what it's all about this is cool oh man what a fabulous way to start out I I just can't imagine what it's like because I've not done paragliding yet I have done skydiving but I have not done paragliding and I really want to but I just haven't managed it now you mentioned conditions Mm -hmm. how critical is the weather do you have to be a an amateur meteorologist to do this sport Oh my gosh, that would be really helpful. Um, yeah, knowing weather um, is is so much of paragliding, and it's that was something that was super intimidating when I started. Is I, I really knew nothing. I mean, embarrassingly enough, I don't know if I could tell you the difference between like a cumulonimbus cloud or like you know pyrocumulus cloud. Like there are all these different types of weather that I could not tell you about. Um, but that has been one. Well, that was one of the draws for me is like this whole other area that I knew really nothing about conditions and weather. And the basic thing that you kind of learn when you're starting to learn about flying is you learn about thermals. And just like the basic premise is that, you know, the sun heats the ground and hot air rises, right? And so as hot air rises, it tends to rise in column shaped formations. And if it does that enough, it forms a cloud, right? And so clouds kind of indicate the top of a thermal column and enough you know, moisture and heat gathers and then it rains. And that's like the pattern of weather that you learn like in elementary school. But that is also the basic patterns of weather that we learn. And you learn kind of how to use weather to your advantage, right? Whether that's just like basic wind or whether that's the time of day and and what, you know, side of the mountain the sun is heating up and how you can use that to your advantage. But more importantly, you learn um, what, you know, dangerous weather looks like and what dangerous conditions are. And I think like when you're learning, it's trying to figure out, okay, like, what is it, you know, what are conditions that I should not be flying in as a novice? And, uh, and luckily, there's plenty of, you know, any instructor or folks that you're with on the hill, that's kind of part of it is that's a big part of the discussion and the kind of the chatter when you're at a launch spot is what's what's the weather today? What are the conditions doing? You know, if you're in an area that has like a wind talker that can, you know, give you what the wind direction and speed is, everyone's kind of talking about that and trying to figure out what that means for their flight for the day and what to watch out for and is it good or bad and and so that's kind of a big part of it is like figuring out this invisible force and and how to best work with it mm, and it being invisible certainly doesn't help it doesn't help but I had somebody tell me once that if we like somebody once mentioned like hey wouldn't it be great if we could have like glasses that could show us what was happening in the air right is the air going up is it going down which way is the wind going 
And then I had a very smart instructor tell me if we could see what was happening in the air, there's no way in hell that we would be flying in it. (laughs) (laughs) Probably true. So in some cases, I think ignorance is bliss in some cases. Um, But uh, yeah, there's, it's kind of one of the really intriguing things. And I think it's a reason why this is a sport that people do their whole lives is the weather is never the same two days in a row anywhere in the world. You know, it's something that's constantly changing and you constantly have to learn about and figure out how to, how to deal with it and how to take advantage of it and how to be safe in it. Mm, And that really does matter. You know, we bought my oldest son a paragliding tandem flight for his high school graduation. We just thought that'd be really cool. He could fly over the school, you know. So cool. And we went up on the mountain and it was a beautiful day. And the, the flight guide instructor was looking at us, shaking his head. I'm going, what's wrong? He goes, I, I don't think we're flying today. I'm looking around going, oh, it's Bluebird. What do you mean we're not flying today, you know? And then he says, well, we've got a weather station that's over that way, and it's telling us what's coming this way, and we're looking at that, and I don't want to be in that when it gets here, you know? And in the end, we didn't fly. You know, it didn't happen. And it was like, wow, you really got to know your stuff. Because being completely uneducated on that, I was like, yeah, let's go. This is great. You know, beautiful day. Let's, Let's make this happen. And not so much. So have you ever been on a flight where the weather really surprised you, kind of shook you up a little bit? Um, Yeah, I actually had a flight yesterday that was really interesting. And it was one of those situations where we had multiple different weather stations kind of telling us different things. And, you know, the forecasts were looking different in different areas. And, And sometimes you just have to go up to launch and wait and and look and and observe and see what's going on and so the what long story short the wind was coming from a different direction than i was used to flying in our santa barbara mountains and uh, when the wind comes from a different direction it it kind of creates a different obviously kind of wind pattern in the different canyons and valleys and ridges that we're flying and so I took off of launch and I did what was normally my typical flight plan, which was kind of, I was heading out toward this one ridge where I've been able to find lifts pretty consistently in the past. And normally that's a pretty smooth glide from launch out to this ridge. And instead of it being a smooth glide, I was getting tossed around and there was really strong lifts lifting me up and then really strong sink bringing me down. Ooh. And it was a very active um, glide, if you will. And the whole time and in paragliding what I was taught again early on is instead of being like afraid of those conditions or like, wow, it was really strong or or violent. And you kind of using these negative words to describe that air uh, instead, try to be curious about it. So this whole time I'm flying, I'm trying to like keep a smile on my face and be like, okay, this is fun. Like I'm having a good time. It's different. I'm trying, you know, not scared is like not the right word to use because you kind of have to be, um, empowered about the whole thing. Right. And I'm trying to be curious and I'm like, part of me is like, what the hell is going on? Like I've never experienced this before and I've done this flight like a lot of times. Right. And so I kind of get out to the ridge and things calm down and long, I get to kind of the landing zone and I'm there and I'm talking with the other pilots and they're like, yeah, I think you were flying through some pretty severe rotor, um, because you were kind of hugging this ridge, which I normally do, but because the wind was coming from the other direction, it was probably whipping over and creating kind of essentially this like washing machine effect Mm. through the flight plan that I had. And that is a total rookie mistake. So anyone listening to this who like actually paraglides enough is like, well, of course, if the wind was blowing from the east, you shouldn't have been on that side of the canyon. But again, I'm still like learning and I'm still figuring it out. And so there's, that's the other thing is there's just like so much to learn and try to remember all at the same time. But now I've experienced that and I'm sure as hell going to remember it for next time. <laughs> How did you feel when your feet were back on the ground? I mean, it felt good. It was like really fun. Honestly, I was pretty jazzed just because I think it's cool to like have that new experience and to have learned something. And like I dealt with it really well. I was a very active pilot. Um, You know, that air was so active. I had taken a couple of small like little collapses. The tip of my wing kind of tucked under because the air was so violent, which is not a super exciting, you know, great thing to have happen. But 
Um, I've learned um, and done some good SIV training over the course of my training and some like learning how to be an active pilot. So when your wing is, is kind of flopping and the air is kind of active, how do you make sure that you stay safe and you keep your wing open and keep flying? And so I was pretty proud of myself to have been in a situation that was new, but to have stayed mentally conscious and to and involved and and to have you know ultimately had a great flight mm, wow well good for you and now next time something like that happens it'll be familiar yeah absolutely wow well what is it like to fly on the perfect day how long are you up there and just take us through a flight the emotions the sights the smells yeah, well, I'll take you through my first flight. So most of when you when you're when you're learning to fly, you start by learning on a training hill, and your flights are two, you know, one minute, right? You're launching and you're landing, and that's what you're learning. And then you progress and you fly off of a mountain launch site, and you know, a straight from launch to landing zone flight is called like a sled ride. You know, you're just kind of sledding down the mountain, and those can be between like ten and fifteen minutes in Santa Barbara. So I had had a lot of 10 to 15 minute flights and that's great. That's a great way to learn. You're just figuring it out. And then I remember my first hour long flight that I had in Santa Barbara and I launched and um, it was a good conditions day and I'm I'm kind of in the air for a couple of minutes and I suddenly start feeling myself go up and I'm like, oh God, I'm in the thermal, like it's happening. (laughs) This is like for the real deal. And so I do what I had been like thinking about and talking about for a long time, which is I turned and you're supposed to turn in a thermal and go in circles just the way a bird does when they're in a rising mass of air. And sure enough, I just kept going up and up and up. And soon enough, I was a few hundred feet over the launch area and everyone on launch was like cheering and hooting and hollering because this is like the first time that I'd really like gone up instead of just gotten down. <laughs> nice. And and it was so cool. And I would spend an hour up there just like having fun and playing and and exploring and saying, okay, well, I was able to go up on this kind of ridge area. I wonder if I go downrange a little bit, what'll happen? Can I get up there? And oh no, that's not working. You need to come back and um, and so that was just really, really amazing. And there was really no feeling like it. And for the first time I got to actually spend some serious time in the air. So, um, an hour flight for me is really good. Um, especially in Santa Barbara, I think the most, the longest flight I've ever had here is about an hour and a half or so. Um, but, uh, that's, that's also because Santa Barbara is kind of a technical place to learn to fly. It's, it's, um, it can be really conditions dependent. And so sometimes it just takes being patient and waiting for the right day to come along. Mm. How much does the, uh, the ocean there influence the, the weather and the flying? A lot, um, in, in, in a good way in that it does keep, um, it does keep it pretty, um, it, it keeps the conditions pretty stable a lot with like Santa Barbara is really interesting. It's in this like the way that it's along the shore, it's in a wind eddy. So just the way that like a river has an eddy of water that kind of curls around and is stable. Um, Santa Barbara has that as well for the wind. And so even if there's on kind of the north side of the mountains, there's kind of a strong north wind coming in, the marine air blocks that and provides this wonderful little like area of stable flying conditions. Mm, That's cool. Wow. Yeah. What about heights? You know, some people say, I don't know if I could be up there like that. It would just be too scary. Is a fear of heights a a big consideration? You know, I think as a rock climber, I dealt with this a lot. And I believe that everybody has a fear of heights. It's just how you manage to handle it and and deal with it and know that it's there and say like okay like I'm aware that my brain is telling me that I'm high and that that's scary but part of it is being able to keep calm and and fly right and or keep cl- keep calm and keep climbing and so I think that's I mean as most like most adventure sports right it's all about that mental aspect of it right the physical um, location and aspect of it is, is one part of it. But I think one of the things that makes something like flying so fascinating and so addicting is the fact that it really is a mental challenge where you're like, okay, I know I have to use like my skill and my reason and, and my breathing, right. To be able to calmly make good decisions and not be afraid when I'm in this situation. Um, and I think, that's a huge part of it. And I also think, you know, you get used to, you, you can get used to it too, right? Like the first time you do it, it 
kind of might feel really high, but the interesting thing about paragliding is height is your friend, right? right. Yeah, so absolutely. like to, to state the obvious, the only thing that hurts you in paragliding is the ground, right? So like being higher up is a really good thing. Um, the higher you get, the more time, if something goes wrong, the time you have to solve for that problem before you end up crashing. And so it's kind of this weird, and you, you learn that very early on. So the higher you get, almost the easier, like the, the, the less stressful it becomes. And you get really psyched to be high up. And so I think that's, it's actually a really cool, like, you know, anecdote to, to a fear of heights almost. Yeah. Kind of the psychology aspect of this just a little bit. Is it, the the innate fear of heights that makes it so fun is that that kind of tension part of what makes the sport great or would you rather just completely overcome it so you could enjoy the sport in a different way that's a super good question um i think that just like our brains you know like new things at first you know and that's something that's really fascinating about it and, um, I don't know, I guess like we tend, I, I tend to like get bored easily, for example, and I want to kind of keep challenging myself and moving on to the next thing and feel like I'm constantly learning and growing. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, obviously I think that the, the, the fact that there is some danger in it, it sets the stakes a little bit higher and it, and it forces you to kind of challenge, challenge that. And, and it challenges you to kind of sit down and say like, Hey, like what, why am I doing this? Right? Like, what is the risk associated with it? And what are my, like, what are my risk limits and what am I okay with and what am I okay doing? And so I think the fact that there is, like, if this was a totally safe thing, I don't think it would be that as interesting, you know, but it's the fact that you are challenged in this whole new way that makes it really appealing as a sport. On that, kind of on that vein, some adventure sports are kind of binary. And what I mean by that is you're safe or you're not. There's not much distance between the two. Like scuba diving, it's a very safe sport. But if you're really deep and you run out of air, you've got to figure something out, right? And generally, you can go to the surface. It's not that big of a deal. Skydiving, your chute is open or it's not, (laughs) right? It's kind of binary that way. Still very safe because the parachutes do open and you have a reserve, you know, and that's part of what makes it so safe, that along with the training, right? Would you say that paragliding is binary like that? Or is there a lot more room for things to happen? That's super interesting. Um, I'm going to answer that question by like talking about a piece of the training that we do, which is to do what's called an SIV training. And that's you simulate essentially everything that could go wrong while you're in the air. Mm -hmm. And so I think without the proper training, paragliding can be maybe binary. And I think that's often when you're learning, that is how it feels like you're either flying or you're something's gone wrong and you don't know how to get yourself out of it. But the reality is, is that um, experienced paragliding pilots have learned how to deal with some of the bad things that can happen in the air. And so as a beginner pilot, it's really important to learn those skills and, again, to be an active pilot. So when you do an SIV training, um, the one I did was in California with Let Fly Paragliding. And it's really cool. You get towed up in the air on this, like, huge line. A boat tows you up into the air, and you're 2,000 feet above a lake. And you've got a radio on, and your instructor on the ground. And then you go through, and you – you know, collapse your wing or you practice stalls or you go into an auto rotation and you, all of these things that could happen in the air. If your wing were to collapse, for example, you learn how to reopen your wing and to be an active pilot. Mm. And, um, and so there is, it's not necessarily one or the other. There is kind of this zone in the middle where you can, especially as you become a better pilot, like as you advance in the sport, you find, you know, you're, you're able to keep your wing open for longer so that you're not falling, um, necessarily. Now things can get really tangled, right. And like, you can totally kind of get screwed up in which case you are falling, but you have a reserve parachute. In many cases, most pilots have two reserve parachutes. Let's say the first one doesn't work. You've got that second backup. Um, but you know, of course you've got to be high enough above the ground for those reserve shoots to, to have happen. So there's a lot of decisions leading up to, I, I think in some cases, there's a lot of decisions leading up to like, 
you're either flying or you're screwed. (laughs) There's a lot of decisions leading up to that. It's that that's not, that's definitely not like every flight that you're in where it's one or the other. Bentgate Mountaineering is prepared to help you get ready for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear so you can get your skis and your boots there as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events. Planning a new product or your next big trip? Running out of space for those ideas? U.S. Marker Board offers whiteboards and glass boards of every size, color, and surface material to keep you planning. From floor-to-ceiling boards to projectable glass boards for that perfect presentation, custom work is their specialty. U.S. Marker Board is the go-to for planning your team collaboration space. Think your needs are too complex? U.S. Marker Board welcomes the adventure of fulfilling your order. Use promo code ADVENTURE to get 12% off at usmarkerboard.com. I think a lot of sports are far from binary. For instance, alpine skiing or mountain biking or, or so right. many sports where you can choose your speed, you can choose your terrain, you can choose your weather. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so much that you can, and the sport grows forever. So here's a question then. With paragliding, as your skill improves, do you think there's going to come a day where you're, you're going to be like, yeah, I, I've, I've kind of seen it all. Not sure if uh, there's much left for me. Or do you think it's a sport that can grow forever? Yeah, I I mean, I absolutely think it's a sport that I don't think I'm going to get bored with. It's something that constantly is evolving and changing. And part of that is the fact that the weather is so different. I mean, I've known people who have been flying in Santa Barbara for, you know, 10, 15 years in the same mountains with the same launch sites. And they just are so psyched on it because it's so different every day and the challenge is different every day. So I do think that it, it changes and it evolves and, and you, you have different challenges. It's sometimes the, cha- the biggest challenge you're going to face is the one that you have on launch and that decision of, do I launch today or not? Like, is today an okay day for me to fly? fly? And, um, you know, as a very competitive person, as somebody who like, likes to be the best that the decision to not even get in the air is a really hard one for me. And, and has been one of the more difficult parts of learning this. And I would say that, you know, I, I got to a point where I was like, okay, I think I can, you know, I'm, I'm starting to kind of understand this and figure it out. And then I go up to a new launch site in conditions that seem to me a little, that I'm not really familiar with and it's a new area and I don't know the landing zone and there's just like a lot of factors going on and I'm not feeling well that day. And then I have to like take a second and sit with myself. And in my case, it's more like 10 minutes to sit with myself to figure out like, Hey, am I going to fly or not? And I, and that on that particular day, I chose not to. And I was incredibly upset with myself and it, it was not upset with myself, but I was very like frustrated and upset about the situation And what's interesting about that is then I have this whole week after that of saying like, wow, like why did I have such a strong emotional reaction to this? And it's part of that learning of paragliding. And that was one of the things that initially intrigued me was like, wow, like this is something where you are constantly like all of the tools in your toolkit that you have built over the years through rock climbing, through business, through whatever you're doing that, you know, makes you a good decision maker and makes you very confident in yourself and, 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 you know, a a good feeling that you have decent risk management and then having to put all of that to the test, that's a lifelong challenge. You know, I mean, that's something that everyone deals with in in every sport, but it really faces you pretty strongly up front in, in this one. I love what you just said when you kind of illustrated how 
learning the various adventure sports gave you life skills that you can use in business and and you know what I mean? I think a lot of people don't realize that. Well, I mean, that's one of the things that I I, I think is so important about getting outside us. And I, I'm a big proponent of like getting my lady friends outside and pushing their comfort zones um, is, is because I think that it can be really empowering as an individual and yeah. And there's skills that you're going to take with you for, for whatever you're doing, whether that's your work life or your personal life. Um, you know, I think it's really interesting with paragliding. It's definitely like a male dominated sport and that's really interesting because there really is no advantage that I've heard, I've heard a good argument for really for why men should be better than women. And yet, um, there are still like when the competitions for flying, there's a men's category and a women's category. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because in these competitions, women are still placing top 10 and, uh, and that's very interesting. And, and then I go to a launch site, no matter where I am in the country or in, at this point in the world, and it's 95% men on launch that are going to wow. be flying that day. And it's crazy. I mean, the other, the other day I landed in Santa Barbara and there were three women in the landing zone and I didn't know any of them. And we all kind of looked at each other and we're like, we should take a photo. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like we should do this. It was the funniest thing. This is like, this never happens. It was that unique. Um, and yet for me, paragliding has been so empowering in that it has forced me to be completely, um, self-reliant and, and, and trust myself to make decisions and then commit to those decisions once I've made them. And that's even different from rock climbing. And in most cases with rock climbing, you're frequently with a partner or you're with a team. And in some cases, you know, especially if your partner tends to be stronger than you are, it's very easy to take the back seat and be like, Oh no, you take the lead. And I'll just, you know, follow up on this one. But in paragliding, you're always on lead, right? Like there's no, there's no ability to just be the follower. You're always on the sharp ends and you really have to kind of step up and say like, I'm very capable of do this, doing this and, and, and know that you have made a good decision and then take control of that decision. And so those are all incredible like skills that translate into, into life and business and just in being confident in myself and knowing that I have the ability to, you know, have the ability to really think through something and make a decision and then commit to it and go for it. And uh, what could be better? Oh, love that. And we should tell the listeners, you know, our show airs a couple of weeks after we do the interview. It is National Women's Day today, right now. (laughs) Happy International Women's Day, everyone. (laughs) Two weeks late, but (laughs) for you and me right now, we're in the middle of it. And I love the the female empowering speech that you just gave. That is so cool. (laughs) It is, it is confusing to me why some sports seem to be male-dominated when often it's the ladies who have the advantage. A perfect yeah. example of that is rock climbing. I don't know how male-dominated it is anymore, but it used to be. Mm-hmm. And often women have a slight advantage in rock climbing over men because of a strength-to-weight ratio and dexterity and, and flexibility and that kind of thing. And, you know, it's just like, wow. And so this is another sport where it's like, well, why would that be male-dominated? You have any ideas I've got some theories. Um, so yeah, that's very, it's super interesting that you say that because that was when I was learning to paraglide. Um, and I was on the training hill, you know, kiting for the first time and handling and, and, and learning how to launch and land. You know, I, I feel like I picked it up fairly quickly. And the response to that was, oh yeah, women pick this up so much faster than guys. And part of that is it's a very delicate sport. It involves working with the wing and being kind of like one with the wing, right? And you can't muscle your way through it. Like you can't muscle your way into being a good paraglider. It's a very delicate sport. And so I guess, sure, women, um, especially if somebody, if you've like been a dancer before or you've danced with, you're you're used to following the wing and listening to what's going to happen. And so that's a really interesting dichotomy, right? Where you're, you're taught on the hill, like, oh yeah, women pick this up quickly. And then there's really not a whole lot of women who progress to a higher level 
And I don't know if there's like a big drop off at training. I would love to learn more about that. If anybody does know anything about that, that kind of like attrition rate between women who like want to try it versus who then progress to the next level. That would be a really interesting thing for me to learn about. But I also just don't see a whole lot of women on the training hill in general. So in terms of individuals stepping up for the first time and saying, I want to try this new adventure sport, I think the difference there is this idea that is it is an, an adventure sport that's risky or it's an extreme sport and that it can be, quote, dangerous, right, or that you should be, quote, scared. And I think that honestly, like as a society, one of my big theories here is that just boys and girls are raised to assess and then act on risk differently in that like, you know, a common example, you've got a little girl and a little boy, they're on a playground, maybe they're climbing a tree, um, you know, the girl is told to be careful, right? And the little boy is taught to like how to make sure he doesn't like, you know, like fall or whatever, or like, you know, how to just be safe about the whole thing. And frequently, if there's an accident, a girl is taught like, hey, you know, you should have been more careful. You shouldn't take that big a risk next time. This is what happens. And a boy is taught like, okay, well, that's going to happen more in your life. So brush it off and learn how to deal with it. Wow. And so, yeah, so like my generalization, my, my thinking here is that like, it's just, I think that as men and women, we experience the same sensations and the same fears and emotions when it comes to adventure sports. But we're, we're taught, we're, we're taught how to handle them differently. And we even have different language for them. So, um, I've been really, I, and I noticed this in myself and, um, and I do have my, my partner, my boyfriend, Logan also is a paraglider. And this has been a really interesting conversation for us in that we'll have a very similar flight, you know, time-wise our flight plan and the words that we use to describe it can be very different. And mine tend to be like, that like especially at first I was like that was really scary it was really violent um I was really nervous and his vocabulary is like that was exciting I was really curious and um like that was thrilling and just like the vocabulary alone is very different so um you know if that is like if if as women were taught to just be a little bit more cautious then that's going to discourage women in general from getting out on the hill because maybe they do go and they, you know, they do their first couple of flights and the feelings they're feeling are very normal and everybody else is feeling them. But when you put words like scared behind them, then that makes it negative and it makes it really hard to continue to do that. Wow, man, that's, that's one of the best answers I've ever had to a question like that. (laughs) That, You have really thought this out. Yeah, a few a few times here and there. <laughs> That's that is that is really really interesting to me, and I think you're onto something. People, I think traditionally do use different language with girls when they're being raised versus boys. I think you're right? I think you're like, onto something there. Yeah, and language is so powerful, right? Like language is. Like, if you don't have a word for something, how can you possibly feel it? Um, but, I mean, I don't know. I think I, I always think about, like, it, when you think about a really concrete example of this, um, because it is hard to to quantify that, I guess, in something like an adventure sport. But, like, in surfing, for example, right, you have women's surfing competitions um, occasionally get shut down or stopped because the waves are so big, Right. And like in men's surfing, that doesn't happen that often. Mm. And so it's like from a young age, the girls are taught like, oh, no, you don't have to learn how to deal with the fear of being out in a big wave, right? Or how to handle that. And, and that affects them from a very young age. And so I think if we see it across all sports. And I think if we can kind of teach our young girls to like, you know, this is life. There are going to be things that are scary. There are going to be things that hurt. And this is how you deal with it. And let me help you instead of telling you to just shy away from it. Let me help teach you like how to um, make a good decision, you know, and that sometimes the decision is I'm going to do it again. I'm going to pick myself up and I'm going to do it again. It's not necessarily to shy away from it. So that's something that I, I, I work with, with a lot of the women that I'm I see um, learning now if I'm on launch with them or if they want to talk with me, you know, at the landing zone about their flight, I do encourage them to like work on their language instead of saying like scary, you know, say, 
you know, I don't know, exciting. Or instead of saying I was nervous, you know, maybe saying I was, I was curious about it. And I think that's really powerful. I think it really is. Something that I have mentioned on the show a couple of times, but it's time to mention it again, is naming. And the reason I say that is because people always try to name other people and people get named at a young age. And that naming helps to define who we think we are. And it's mm. usually unfair. Because it's, it's usually completely inaccurate. The only person who has the right to name anybody is yourself, right? You can decide who you are and what you're capable of. No one else can do that for you. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And like also being willing to like know that even if you've named yourself, like that can still change. Like you can, that doesn't have to be said in concrete, right? Like that still is a fluid thing. Absolutely. And I really encourage people to think about that a little bit. If you haven't given a lot of thought to that, think about it. Think about how you've been convinced of who you are. What led to that? And then to rethink it and say, but who would I want to be if I had a a completely clean slate? How would I define myself? And what's fascinating to me about it is when you start defining yourself according to what you want to be, some people feel like that's, that's, well, that's not what I am. But no, the reality is a part of you is that. That's why you are yearning for it. That's how you're wired. That's who you are. So embrace it and go for it, and you'll grow toward that new name. You know what I mean? Totally. Um, the way my mom would say that is fake it till you make it, (laughs) (laughs) which is so true. And honestly, like everybody, I think that uh, one of the other greatest things I've been taught recently or just was told and I just love is, um, everybody's faking it at all times. Right. And sometimes you just have to like pretend to be the person that you want to be and, and do those things. Even if you I like this idea of like imposter syndrome, right? Like you think everybody's going to know that you're just faking it and most likely they won't. And then maybe one day you'll wake up and realize that, oh my gosh, this is the person that you've become and, and you did it. You faked it till you made it. While hiking along the Appalachian Trail, fellow adventurer and podcast listener Scott Newman faced an age old problem that we're all familiar with, foggy eyewear. So he did something about it. He solved that problem with Sven Kansi's anti-fog solution. Biodegradable, odorless, and 100% guaranteed, Sven Can See is the solution for all four seasons across all lens types. Go to SvenCanSee.com today and enter promo code ADVENTURE to get two bottles for the price of one. That's S-V-E-N-CanSee.com. Do you suffer from acute lethargy, stiff joints, weight management challenges, and worsening eyesight or hearing issues? Do you sometimes feel low in energy or have trouble sleeping well? Do you wonder at times about your path in life and your vitality? You may be suffering from PYAD. This disorder is much more common than you might at first think. The good news is that we have a remedy that can alleviate many of these undesired symptoms. This life-altering remedy for PYAD is called ASP and can help you get your life back again. Regain your energy and excitement for life. Sleep better at night. Watch unwanted pounds drop off as muscle mass recovers. Many using ASP report a new vitality and even report improvements in their social life. ASP may be the remedy you are looking for. Recent studies have shown that individuals not suffering from PYAD, post-youth aging disorder, also experience great benefits from ASP. Matter of fact, people of all ages from all backgrounds report amazing improvements by using ASP to enrich and recover their zest for living. Sound too good to be true? It is not. ASP, the Adventure Sports Podcast, can help you get the enthusiasm, strength, and fun back in your life. The aforementioned claims have not been medically verified, and no animals were harmed in the making of this advertisement. Well, Sarah, something that I wanted to direct toward is what you're doing with College Outside. And the reason is you've just given us uh, 30 minutes here of amazing reasons why adventure sports are beneficial to people as they come to learn who they are and as they're learning skill sets for dealing with life. And College Outside is doing stuff that's related to that. So tell us what that is. Yeah, absolutely. So College Outside is an organization that supports 
college outdoor education programs and outing clubs across the country. And our core mission is and belief is that so many individuals get introduced to the outdoors in college in these programs as they're trying new things and forming their identities. It's a great time to be introduced to the outdoors and, and fall in love with, with outdoor activities. And if we can support these programs, then hopefully we can get more students outside. And for a number of the reasons that we've talked about, I mean, the benefits of um, you know, falling in love with an outdoor sport and or an outdoor activity or just the outdoors in general is an incredibly empowering experience. And um, it helps you form incredible relationships with the people around you. And also it helps you have an appreciation for our planet and the natural spaces that we play in. So um, for us, there's really not, nothing that's quite as important as that. And so from a concrete level, College Outside provides um, discounts to, uh, on equipment for programs to help them be able to purchase more equipment and get more students outside. So an outdoor education program can get wholesale or better than wholesale pricing through our program and helping kind of streamline that process for them. And then we also offer pro deal level discounts to the student leaders who are a part of these college outdoor programs. And, uh, and so we love working with those student leaders are the ones who are, you know, acting as guides on campus and introducing new students to the outdoors. And so we want to make sure that they have the equipment to, to make that happen. Mm. You know, when I was in college, I don't know of an outdoor sports program. I don't, <laughs> I'd never heard of such a thing. I remember I would stand up in the middle of a class and say, Saturday morning, I'm going to teach anybody who wants to learn how to repel, how to repel, just show up, you know? Yeah. And, but that was the program and I shouldn't have been teaching people. I wasn't trained, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but the point is now... There are a lot of outdoor sports, um, adventure sports style programs in universities across the, the nation. And I applaud that movement. I think it's wonderful. And I'm glad to see it happening. You know, if you're a college student listening right now, um, it's important that your fellow college students get the word, that they understand that there are opportunities to learn these things, to have these experiences. And so share this show, share the idea of college outside, and look in your university for its college program. And they're called a lot of different things, right? But it's happening, and I think that we really need to support that movement. I think it's so positive. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, like you said, they can be formal outdoor education programs um, or outdoor leadership programs. But many times they just start as extracurricular clubs, like a mountain club or a climbing club or a ski team or anything like that. They And, you know, we college outside, we work with about 275 different universities that have them. And, um, and many of them are really big programs, right? Like at University of Vermont or Dartmouth. I mean, these are universities pretty much founded on their outdoor programs. And, um, and, and they just provide such an incredible value to the student body and to the school in general. And, um, and my, my guess is there's probably a couple thousand outdoor education programs and God knows how many just outing clubs and mountain clubs that exist just in the U.S. alone. And, and they're forming all the time. We work with so many new programs who are just trying to get off the ground and get their first sets of, of rental gear to, you know, help students get outside. And, and it's so, it's so cool to see that happen. Mm, I am a hundred percent behind what you're doing <laughs> just because I think it's so important I love working with youth especially and trying to introduce them to adventure sports and connecting with nature and being outside. I have, I've done a lot of that, and it's so rewarding for me to see how they just come to life when they discover the joy of it, you know? And you are helping with that through your program to help provide these college programs the resources they need. I love it. I love what you're doing. That's great. Good yeah, for you. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think one of the parts of College Outside is providing these programs with a concrete, like, tool that they can use to help with recruitment, right? So, like, that's a big perk of joining your program is you get access to College Outside or a perk of becoming a leader of your program is is that you get access to our gear deals. And that's really cool because in terms of developing outdoor leadership, especially during school, I mean, those are skills that translate so well into your professional life, whether or not you want to be a guide or, you know, um, or work in outdoor education. I was once told that if you can lead a trip in the back country, you sure as hell can lead a boardroom. 
right? And so I think the skills that you learn as an outdoor leader, the logistics, the communication, the group dynamics, um, the reliability, the training, all of those skills apply to any job in any industry and really support you and empower you for the rest of your life. You know, it's fun. I've been listening to Freakonomics podcast. It's one of my favorites on the planet. And they've been doing a series lately about CEOs of big companies. And the language that you're using is so similar to the language that's coming out of that podcast about what it takes to be a CEO. It's, mm. it's being able to make those decisions, to know that you're on point, and to be able to convince others, right? To follow the lead and stick with a program and, and all that sort of stuff that you're talking about. It's not just leadership. It's skills that you'll learn a lot from adventure sports. Absolutely. We do a lot of work with helping our student leaders figure out how to like translate and articulate their skills once they graduate. And, you know, when they're trying to find work and jobs and in college, I is about to launch a career program that's not only going to be a jobs board with like entry level jobs and internships in the industry, but it's also going to help take those top student leaders and help place them in jobs in the industry. And, uh, we know we've got these great relationships with, um, you know, over 50 different companies in the outdoor industry and thousands of students who are looking to work there. And a lot of what we're doing is saying, Hey, if you're an outdoor leader, regardless of your major, right, whether you're an environmental science major or a literature major or an engineer, and you're going to be around like-minded people who have a passion for the outdoors and who truly respect and understand the value of being a leader outside and the self-awareness and the training and the responsibility that you're going to bring to their team. Um, I think that most people in the outdoor industry really understand and respect that. And so um, we're just trying to help kind of facilitate that and hopefully get more students psyched and get them into jobs that they're loving and, and built up our industry. Mm. You mentioned the industry. I want people to know the vastness and the, you know, the potential of the outdoors industry. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, so the outdoor industry is a $646 billion industry, that's billion with a B, and it was um, recently in the past couple of years accepted by the U.S. government as an official GDP producing industry. Um, Its size makes it bigger than the automobile and the pharmaceutical industries combined. Wow. So it's big. Um, and it includes not only the equipment, but it also includes the outdoor recreation aspect of it, national parks, anything along those lines. But I mean, it's a field that is, it's still a relatively young industry in that, um, a lot of the folks who created the initial founding companies like, you know, Jansport and Patagonia and the North Face, um, their founders are, um, most of them are still around and we're just kind of dealing with a new transition of leadership. And what that's, what's exciting about that is that that there's so much opportunity in this industry for somebody who is um, motivated and works hard and wants to come in and work with passionate, like-minded people. Um, I think this is an industry that really um, respects that and is willing to give the space to somebody to grow and to challenge themselves. Well, what kind of jobs are there in the industry? Any industry that big, they can't all be guiding Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, (laughs) right? Right. Yeah. I mean, very few of the, I would say very small sliver of the guides or of the jobs, excuse me, are are guiding jobs or outdoor education jobs. That is really one very narrow sliver of the industry. Um, But I mean, I don't know, you take a company like Patagonia, for example, right? And yes, they are, um, they make clothing. And so in terms of product design and manufacturing, retail, sales and marketing, right, the whole nine, that's there. But most of these companies also have a really strong environmental and sustainability corporate mission. And so in many cases, if that is your passion, right, let's say you're an environmental science major and or environmental policy major, most of these companies have, uh, you know, corporate responsibility mission. And there there's work and projects designed around how can, as a company in this industry, we give back to our natural spaces. So I think that's a really good example, whether you're working in policy or you want to figure out the next best, um, you know, material like Patagonia's, you know, recycled polyester that's made out of recycled water bottles, right? You could be a part of really changing the way that the apparel 
space is viewed and made. And that's a really big deal. Um, there's a lot of great nonprofits in the space who are working to say, for example, like the Access Fund Protect America's Climbing Areas. There's tech companies that are working in like I know of a really cool company that has a new avalanche beacon and avalanche crowdsourcing avalanche data to make the backcountry more safe, right? So there's the tech space, there's the media space. If you're a photographer, I mean, I could go on forever, right? Regardless of the job that you want, there is probably there is there's definitely a space for you in this industry. I love that. It it's uh, fascinating to think about how many normal sounding jobs are actually in the outdoor industry, and some people <laughs> yeah. are saying, "Well, now wait a minute. I want to be outdoors, though. I want to be doing this right. stuff." Right. Right. So do I really want to sit at the desk designing something so that someone else can go do this stuff? I guess we have to answer that question. Yeah, absolutely. And that being said, um, I'm the last person that wants to sit behind a desk and a computer all day. Um, but one of the cool things about being in the industry, and, and I'll, I'll just give College Outside as an example, not only are we an outdoor industry company, but we're also a pretty small company. We're a pretty young, small team. And but the thing that all of us have in common in our office is that we all love the outdoors. We love getting outside. And we have this culture where if the surf is good, right? Like you got to go surfing, right? Like that takes priority. If the, if it just snowed five feet at mammoth, like you're leaving early on Friday because you need to go skiing in the powder. And, and for paragliding, it's the same thing. If I, and I just tell my team it's a powder day in the sky. I got to go, you know, sorry. I'll <laughs> I love it. Later. <laughs> and, um, and, and, but I, but from all of my friends and the folks that I work with in the industry, the thing that you're going to find is you're going to be working with people who understand that and understand the importance of that work-life balance. And I think that's something that's really important is your job, which traditionally may sound like sitting at a desk at a computer is lame, is suddenly transformed into something really interesting. If a, the job, the company you're working for, you, um, respect and you think that they are trying to make the world a better place and you generally believe in their mission and B, if the people you're working with every day um, also are getting after it, um, suddenly that work doesn't seem so bad anymore. Yeah. What I love when you say work-life balance, we're not talking about my kid has a sniffle, so I have to take care of him. <laughs> I mean, it can be that, but work-life <laughs> right. balance is, no, the joy of living balance, getting out right. there and doing it, right? Right. Absolutely. And like, if we're not getting out there and doing it, then we're all just a bunch of hypocrites in the first place. So we like, we really go out of our way, especially at our company to make sure that that happens. And, and I hear the same across the industry. And I love that. That's awesome. I'm very pleased that the Adventure Sports Podcast can identify with that just a little bit. That makes me <laughs> a happy man. Sarah, if someone wants to learn more about College Outside, what's the best way to get in touch with the organization? Yeah, well, you can look at our website, www.collegeoutside.com. We also have an awesome Instagram page. It's um, a lot of college outdoorsy humor. So if you're in college, you might love it. Um, you can also email me too at Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, at collegeoutside.com. Uh, happy to talk to anybody about anything, especially if it's paragliding or business related or anything college outside. Feel free to hit me up. Awesome. And if a college student is saying, hey, I love the sound of this, but what about a college organization that does this stuff? That should be pretty easy to find. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. On our website, we have an application um, that you can see. It just says apply now for any outdoor group. Um, if you're a you know university-approved outdoor group, then you will get access to College Outside. The process is pretty easy. We can get you set up. And uh, so, yeah, check out our website for ap the application and for the list of brands and, and things that we can get you. Okay. We're running short on time, but I would love to hear from you how paragliding has changed you. How has paragliding changed me? My gosh, that's such a good question. Um, paragliding has changed me in, in the way that it has given me a wonderful perspective, both figuratively and literally on life. Um, in that sometimes um, there's a lot going on, but you have to like keep calm, keep your breathing together and, and move forward with confidence. And, and that's something that I, I bring with me to every aspect of my life. Mm, I love that. I'm going to ask another related question. How is having fun, however you do that, how has that impacted your life? Is that an important thing to you? 
oh my gosh, if you're not having fun, what is the point of life? That's the whole point. <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah, I try to have fun on and absolutely everything. I mean, um, we like to say like, don't take your business seriously, not yourself. Right. And so I think if you can kind of live with that motto, you're going to live a much happier life. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing paragliding with us today and letting us know about College Outside. I love your business. I love the industry. And it's fantastic what you shared with us about the perspective that you've gained through paragliding and other adventure sports. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, you bet. And for all the listeners out there, wow, paragliding, doesn't that sound like fun? I'm going to have to do it. Until the next show, figure out your fun. It does matter. It is important. Get out there and have some fun. Why don't you do yourself and us a favor and become a member of our Facebook group. In there, you can hear about some awesome adventures, learn how to do new ones, and share what you've been up to. And while you're on the web, do us a favor and go over to patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast and consider becoming a patron to help the show. You can also find a link to patron at the top of our website at adventuresportspodcast.com. As always, thanks for listening, guys.